Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on I'm this. <laughs> people that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in exactly. to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, right. which is different than empathy. Yeah. Right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. can't see the thing around it. Okay. What's up, y'all? Welcome to Hand Me My Purse, the podcast. I am Mimi Walker, and I will be your forever host each and every single time you tune into this podcast. So go ahead and get comfortable. Get yourself a glass of your favorite beverage, whether that's alkaline water, red Kool-Aid, a hot cup of tea with honey, a glass of Cabernet Sauvignon, or Hennessy, and light yourself a candle, some incense, or burn some sage, and just get ready to chill out and have a good time. What's up, friends and kin? So it is none other than your resident Auntie Supreme here at Hand Me My Purse, Mimi Walker, and... Today I'm sipping on a different little mix that I put together. I went to get some Caribbean food a few days ago and sometimes I like to either get sorrel or I like to get their pineapple ginger juice, the one that they make in-house. And sometimes you luck up on a really good strong pineapple ginger that is much more ginger than pineapple. I did. Now I know where to go get it. Uh, and I added a little bit. Actually, I used a whole can and, you know, truly bubbly Celsius. Rummy my coin. OK, because I'm always talking about how great you are. But whatever. I use the original lemonade, truly. And that's the one in the black box. That's my favorite one. The The lemonade series is my favorite. I did a can of the original lemonade. And the pineapple ginger juice from the Caribbean spot. 
Man, oh man, when I tell you that is a drink for the ages, that might be my summer drink. It's good. It's refreshing because it's bubbly. It's spicy because of the ginger, but it says, hey, it's summertime. It's exotic. It's Caribbean. It's tropical. That's the word tropical. Try it if you get a chance. If you can't get your hands on house-made pineapple ginger juice, get the kind in the bottle, or you can try to make it yourself. Me, I know I'm not going to do that. So I'll just go to the Caribbean spot around the corner from my house. So friends and Ken, today's jam is another rendition of the song that was the jam in part one of this series, excuse me, part one of this series in episode number 23 with the Austins, um, where they talked about their experience in housing inequity. And that song is Young, Gifted and Black. My favorite version, as I said in that episode is the Aretha Franklin version, but coming up right behind Aretha is the Donny Hathaway version. It is amazing. I found this cover and the reason that I stopped when I found it was because I recognized the name and the cover title and it is by a band called Family Company and the feature is who is the name that I remembered featuring Louis Cato. I remember when I told you I've lived many lives. I was a full-time makeup artist many years ago and I was working with um, a musician, Reese. I think I was working with Reese by herself. I don't know if this was when her and Talib Kweli had, um, were in a band together. That You know that was a long time ago because there was a whole scandal with the two of them, but whatever. Um, hashtag team Reese all day. Cause that's my dog. Anyway, um, I was working with them and they were performing either in DC or New York. I can't remember, but anyway, I did the grooming for, uh, Talib. I did Reese's makeup, of course. And, um, I met Louis Cato then, and I'd seen him a couple times after that, when I had done, uh, makeup for Reese and grooming for Talib for shows. And when I saw the name, I remembered, I was like, Hey, I remembered him. And then when I saw him, I was like, Oh, and so that's what took me to this. Uh, I hope you like this rendition. It's great. He did a great job. He's an amazing musician. Enjoy the cover and I'll be right back so that we can go ahead and get into this conversation. Part two about housing inequity. This is Family Company featuring Louis Cato and the Donny Hathaway rendition of Young, Gifted, and Black. There's a million, a million boys and girls who are young, gifted, gifted, and black. That's a fact. Yes, it is. Now let's get into the show. Can we talk for a minute? 
What's up, friends and kin? So today we are talking to Bree Jones. And Bree Jones is a young lady here in Baltimore City who is doing a lot of work around housing equity. Or, yes, housing equity, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or to battle the inequities in housing in Baltimore. She's like a superhero. You know, they they have that. Um, you said, no, you're not. I think no, you I'm are. a regular, regular person. Regular, regular. <laughs> I think that's that? millennial talk, right? Re- regular, regular. <laughs> I thought it was regular schmegular. I feel like it's uh, it's flexible. It's fluid. Okay, I- of course. Everything, millennials are just fluid. You guys should be called the water generation. Everything is fluid. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Water <laughs> is good. Water is essential. So anyway, Bree is here and we're going to talk a little bit. This is the second part uh, in the final part of the series that I'm doing on uh, housing inequity. In the first episode, I had my friend Tanisha and her husband Paul on, and they were talking about their experience with getting their home appraised and how their home was appraised for $500,000 less. So half a million dollars less than what it is valued for. And they were, you know, blessed enough to be able to get a second appraisal. And that home was appraised for $1.4 million. The original one was like $982,000 and some change. So I want Bree to introduce herself. First of all, Bree, uh, sometimes I forget to do this and I hate that I forget to do this, uh, but sometimes I'm so excited to talk to people. And today I have my tea. I'm so excited to talk to people. And Brie has her, see, look at that. Brie has some drink of her own. She has some Dunkin' Donuts. Is that uh, coffee, iced coffee? Iced coffee, yep. Okay. Got to do it in the morning. You drink coffee every day? I, you know what? Don't, don't be ashamed. Don't call me out like this, Mimi. I'm sorry, <laughs> but don't be ashamed. This is a safe space. And it is okay is to just. Simultaneously have a Red Bull. Well, it's, listen. It's so here's the thing. I yeah. that first of all, that should let that lets me know that you are a very busy lady. I already knew that. <laughs> I already knew that. But that lets the listeners, that lets lets my friends and can know that you are busy anytime you drinking coffee and Red Bull simultaneously. You, that's really bad. I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and say it because you know sometimes you, 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 sometimes people need an intervention. That is bad. Coffee yeah, and I Red Bull. I need an intervention. I do. Yeah. I, really do. I just want to make sure, are you drinking enough water every day? I'm not. And okay. I'm, Your insides are going to crystallize. You know, the first step is acknowledgement and recognition okay. that I have a problem, you okay. know, seeking help and getting better. So Okay. Exactly. The first step is acknowledgement. The second step is acceptance. And the third step is... <laughs> is I forget the third step, but I always say it's triple A. Um action. That's it. Okay. Action. So now maybe we can incorporate more water. I'm not gonna fuss at you about the caffeine. If your body can maintain that, I don't even know how because you're a petite young lady. Like I don't because I'm a big girl. And if I drink there's this uh one that I drink, I'm not gonna mention it because they're not paying me to mention I will mention it. It's <laughs> called Celsius. And if I drink it and I'm moving around and it's it's green tea. So maybe you maybe that's a good switch for you from so, Red Bull to Celsius. I will take a picture of it and I will text it to you. Okay. But it jolts me. It gives me a jolt. And um, I don't know how it'll stand up the Red Bull. I'll tell you <laughs> a, a funny story very quickly. The first time I ever tried Red Bull, my cousin Randall and I were going to visit his sister, my cousin Angie. She lived in Italy, right? For a little while. 
so we were so pumped. We were going to see her and I'm usually really late with packing or I used to be before I started traveling like a whole lot. Um, and I'm up at two o'clock in the morning packing. I still do this. So that has nothing to do with frequency and travel. I'm up. It's like two o'clock. I'm packing because, you know, I'm going to Italy and it's great. It wasn't my first international trip, but I'm like, this is going to be good. I've never been there. Oh, oh, what should I take? I need comfortable shoes. I drank a Red Bull. Within 15 to 30 minutes, my heart was like, (laughs) you would have thought that you were at the Bayou Classics and the drum line was doing their thing. It was so bad. And I started crying and I called him and I was like, Miranda, I think I'm dying. My heart, my heart is beating so fast. He was like, what the fuck is wrong with you? I was like, my heart is beating. He was like, oh, you're tweaking. I was like, no, I'm not. I don't do drugs. He was like, it's the Red Bull. He said, you just need to calm down. Go drink some water. I said, I can't. I got a pack. We're leaving in a few hours. He said, just calm down. You're fine. People do this every day. But I was like, I will never drink Red Bull again. And I have not. I think my body has built up a tolerance to it to the point where it doesn't actually jolt me awake. It's more so just like, oh, I just need the taste. Mm -hmm. My brain has associated. Yeah. Brain association. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just more of like a, um, more of a signal, like, okay, Brie, we're in grind mode. It's like, oh, I feel like I just got a burst of energy. so. So then really it's just about retraining your brain Right. And with something else. All That's right. what it's about. You sound like my therapist. So, great. You know, uh, <laughs> some people tell me that. And that's I great. Did not, I did not come here this morning. You didn't. You know what? <laughs> okay. Let's not do that then. Okay. Well, um, you have yours and I have mine. For, and I'm drinking from one of my favorite coffee mugs. I don't know if you um, watched Game of Thrones. Um, Not, no. I didn't. I'm not going to even lie. I saw and it's it. perfectly fine. Yeah. Some people, either you like it or you don't. It's like me. Either you like me, you really like me, or you can't fucking stand me. That's the kind of person that I am. It's not a lot of middle ground. It's My not. thing was HBO, like who has HBO money to be watching Game of Thrones? Not I. Not I, said the bear. <laughs> not I, said the brie. So, okay. Now that that's out of the way, she's drinking her coffee and her Red Bull. She's up. I want Brie to uh, introduce herself and tell us who she is. Take it away. Yeah. Um, and first and foremost, thank you, Mimi, so much for reaching out and being interested in me and my story and just being super dope and amazing in the short time that I've known you. Thank you so much. I need those. I need those pats on the back sometimes. I'm not going to lie. I need them. Thank you. I appreciate it. It made me feel good. It is my love language. So anytime you need it, just call me up and I'll tell you how amazing you are. (laughs) I sure will. I will. I will. Thank you. Um, So, yeah, I um, I'm from a little bit about my backstory. I'm from New York originally. Um, Grew up in the Bronx to. to a, a West Indian mom, first generation, um, from yeah, from Dominica, small okay. island, and grew up just in a really loving household. It was just me and my mom, and an, I'm an only child. She's a single parent. Oh, but, okay. So we're really tight, and I'm a Capricorn, and she's a Cancer for what that's worth. So we're whoa, like, no, I understand. I get that. <laughs> There's a lot of love and a lot of hard work. Yes, Ugh, and a lot of money good. one day. It's a good combination. Yeah. Knock on wood. And just a really also loving um, nuclear family. You know, my mm-hmm. grandpa, my grandfather, my aunts and uncles, just a lot of um, love in the household. 
Good. And um, we moved to New Rochelle, which is in the county, when I was maybe like 12 or 13. And that was also just like a really great um, childhood. Went to a good school, pretty diverse city, um, about a third, a third, a third black, white, Latino. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, just no complaints. Just like, remember just like having a lot of love, me and my mom. And eventually I, you know, I went to college, I went to Northeastern University in Boston and studied international business and economics. Okay. Um, I knew I was always interested in business because even as like a little girl, I would sell, did you ever do those little like um, arts and crafts projects where it's like little plastic beads and you have to melt it? You have to melt it down. Yeah. I have iron and then mm-hmm. it together. So I yeah. would like make those and then sell them for a dollar. Okay. And people were buying them and I was like, okay, this is like a little hustle. This right. Up. And so it was just always like, I was kind of constantly thinking about different like ways that I could just be like enterprising, you know? That's the Capricorn way, honey. Tell them to bring me my money. I hadn't, it didn't connect for me until just now, but you're right. Yep. That's how you guys move. <laughs> so yeah, studied international business. That kind of brought me overseas for a bit. I lived in China for a oh, year. Oh, wow. That's South cool. Africa for half a year. You said um, South Africa? Yeah, in Cape Town. I've never been to South Africa. I actually have some listeners in South Africa. So shout out to my friends and kin in South Africa. I want to say in Guateng. Okay. Is that how you say it? Guateng? Um, You know what? No, no. Okay. (laughs) Guateng or Tembisa. I've seen those. Of course, I've seen Johannesburg. Not of course. Like, of course, they're listening in Johannesburg. No, (laughs) not. If they're listening, I'm thoroughly grateful. Mm -hmm. Um, But I've seen, those are some of the towns that I've seen. Yeah, that's cool. But you're you're worldwide. I'm internationally known on the microphone. (laughs) That sounds really cool, though, living in South Africa. I would like to visit there. Do you think? Yes. Yeah, I definitely. So I was in Cape Town, which is a really gorgeous city because it's it's on the coast. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's like a beach town and then there's mountains and there's just like a ton of um, natural. If you are like into nature, Mm -hmm. then it's a really great city. Um, But I mean, they're still struggling socially with the fallout of apartheid. Yeah. And it's the dynamic there is just so, so it was really interesting to experience as an American. Um, and it kind of helped contextualize race for me. Um, like race isn't, well, it's being more talked about now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I was like a teenager in the early two thousands, like it wasn't necessarily explicitly called out as, and maybe just in New York. I think there's different experiences, you know, across the states, depending on where you're at. I think it's safe to say that nationally, like it was talked about, you know, I think there are highs and there are lows where America likes to own like their stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. So the 90s was really big, but the 80s wasn't that big. You know, the 80s talked more about like politics and capitalism. And of course, you and I talk about this all the time, that capitalism is the the, the monster and racism mm-hmm. falls under as another monster, a descendant of capitalism under the umbrella. Right. And so the 90s, 
I think the late 80s, early 90s, racism was, it, it was a lot happening. So I think in this country, there has to be like an insurgence of white supremacist like action, mm. like public white supremacist action that the, the world can see. Like we have to show our slip and then the conversation starts. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, that's what happened last year. Yeah, and with yeah. the whole Trump administration. Yeah, well, of course, you know, that was a whole big thing that whole time. But I, I think that it was like the boil. I, I call America a boil. Last year, I feel like the boil ruptured. Mm-hmm. And it was like there was no, and when and when a boil ruptures, it's like there's nothing you, do, you can do. You have to clean it up in some way. You have to do something because you have a gaping wound with, that is, this is so fucking disgusting, but you have a gaping wound with like, yuck coming out of it coming out yeah got a visual analogy (laughs) yeah but i mean essentially it's it is disgusting like that racism is gross like that so i think that there has to be come a time where you have to clean it up in some way and i think that that is what america is trying to do now but unfortunately um i don't think that we i think we just put a band-aid over it i don't think we ever like core it or you know lance it whatever you know however i've never had a boil but god they seem like they're disgusting (laughs) but um i think you have to when you when there's a boil they say that you have to take the core of it out which is the core of the infection we never take the core of the boil out we just kind of clean it up and dress it but the core of the infection is capitalism absolutely you know white supremacy so in order to take it out there would have to be folks particularly white folks who were willing to give up power, privilege, advantage, and just human nature that's just not in us. No. no? As humans, that's not in us to want to give up power. Absolutely. And to um, make an analogy or, you know, do a side by side, and I know you can't really compare them, but you can. Once you get a taste of it, like it's hard to let it go. I don't know if you know any, but, you know, based on my experience, like it's like selling drugs. I have never sold drugs. Let's be very clear because I am way too afraid of prison. But, you know, like, you know, I, I watch television. We'll just say I watch TV. But mm-hmm. like giving up that power and that money and that fast paced life and the and the, you know, the the clothes and the cars and the girls or the guys and the furs and the, you know, people have a hard time letting that go. You know, so it's, it's that's on a low that's on a that's a low level comparison. Mm-hmm. But I mean, like the the con- the concept behind the power. I mean, b- the locks and Lil Kim said it. It's the key to life is money, power, and respect, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what it's. Uh, uh, you know, you disagree. You look like because we're we're on a yeah, Zoom well, guy, well, and I can see your face. No, like, well, no. Go ahead, tell me what you. I no, I don't disagree. I don't disagree. I think that's the case for most folks. I'm wondering because my lived experience has been different. And I'm wondering where the difference is and how we can maybe get more people to that side. So before I quit my job to um, start Parity as a Mm -hmm. nonprofit company, I actually worked on Wall Street. Um, Oh, wow. By the age of 24, I was making well into six figures. Oh, wow. I just was like, I had a huge savings account. I was able to purchase property mm-hmm. and like, if I wanted to go on a vacation, I would just pay like all cash, you know, and like not mm-hmm. even like have Blink. to my bank account. Yeah. Right. And 
so for all intents and purposes, and my like my career trajectory was going up. I was getting promoted. I was made vice president of the hedge fund that I worked at. And like everything was good. And if I had stayed on that trajectory, I'd probably be at like 300,000 right now, like not even embellishing or exaggerating. Um, but for me, money has never been the ends. Right. Money has always been a means. It's been a tool, but it hasn't been the destination. And so I think that's why it was so easy for me to leave that world behind, pursue a nonprofit um, endeavor where honestly, I'm not even paying myself a salary right now. And that's a whole other conversation yeah. about how it's difficult to run nonprofits. But because I, I guess I, for me, like my ends is like, I want to go back to Dominica and like live off the land yeah. and grow my own food and sit by the beach. You know, mm-hmm. money is a tool for that, for that. but money is not the destination. I totally uh, understand. I, to- I totally get that. I've never uh, worked for a hedge fund. I've never made six figures in my life yet. <laughs> right. Yeah. I will be a multimillionaire and be a philanthropist. I'm speaking that into existence. But those things haven't happened yet. But I have never looked at money like I've never idolized it. Like I get it. When I get it, I get it. When I don't have it, I don't have it. But I keep living. Like you keep going. And then when I get it, I do what I want with it and I take care of myself. And then when I when I'm at a low, then I sit still and I keep it low to the ground until I get it again. And then I do what I need to do. And then, you know, it like it's like um it ebbs and flows. And I think that the the connection that I'm making is, I get what you're saying is that, you know, it wasn't that case for you, but I think that that's because you're just hardwired a different way. Like you have a different spirit. Yeah. Right. And I would say spiritually, like when we talk about manifesting, Mm -hmm. they say that you're more effective manifesting something when you have a detachment from it and a detachment from the outcomes around it. Mm -hmm. When you are obsessed about, I have to get money, I have to get money. First of all, the universe is going to see that you don't think it's going to come to you naturally. And you're operating from a spirit of lack. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So I'm just like, you know, maybe thinking about liberation. I feel like for Black folks, what that's going to look like is a detachment from, you know, like, yes, we want to be stable. We want to secure the bag, but a detachment from, um, I have to kind of hoard wealth or hoard resources because Mm. that implies a scarcity and it also it implies like a concentration of wealth amongst a few rather than a distribution across many and that's like really what parity is trying to do is to create wealth for many well i think that i always say that part of the and we didn't finish uh with you introducing yourself but (laughs) it's what I do here. We just bounce all around and pray that the people can follow along. Um, I think that that is part of one of our major issues is that as a collective and as a community, we focus a lot on I. We are uh, an I community or or a me community. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get a degree. I'm going to move out of the ghetto. I'm going to get a lot of money. I'm going to have a big car. My kids are going to go to private schools. My kids and I'm going to go on international travel. What about your neighbor that you left before you went to college? Mm-hmm. Like, what about Ms. Johnson with the cat? You know what I mean? Like, so... I work at a school and I encourage children to um, 
leave Baltimore and go to other schools, not because they need to get out of Baltimore. Well, sometimes because they need to get out of Baltimore, because some of them need to leave for other reasons, because this city will swallow young Black kids whole, especially young Black men. It will eat them alive. But I encouraged them and I left. But when I left, I came back, right? For many reasons, but I did return. I encourage them to go and then to come back because you kind of see the city in a different way when you leave and come back. When you go see what else is out there, you have an appreciation for what you have here and you can kind of see the beauty in the city because Baltimore is really an amazing city. It is. Mm -hmm. The people are amazing. It's really different. Um, I was saying before, I, I believe it was on the show, but it reminds me of like New Orleans and Detroit and Philly and D.C., those those pockets of uh, Black people, mm-hmm. those cultures in certain cities where it's like it's unique and you'll never find it anywhere else. You ain't mm-hmm. finding no New York, I mean, no uh, Detroit energy anywhere else. Maybe Chicago. And mm-hmm. I'll, I'll throw them in the mix, too. New Orleans Black folks are different. Baltimore Black folks are different. D.C. Mm-hmm. Black folks used to be different. For God's sakes, it used to be called Chocolate City. Like, <laughs> Black folks used to be different. Philadelphia, mm-hmm. you know, they have their own thing going on. I think that, um, and that I encourage them to come back when they're done. But Baltimore mm-hmm. is, uh, we have a lot of, we got a lot of shit going on. So I want people to know, I want you to tell people about Parity and how you got from the Bronx to Boston, back to New York and how you ended up in Baltimore. So I was working on Wall Street, was on that trajectory in finance, did not study real estate, did not necessarily understand it, but I got involved in housing work and housing um, activism and advocacy when my hometown started to be gentrified. Mm-hmm. And um, what can you tell people what gentrification is specifically? Well, there's a lot of different definitions and understandings of it. The the basic basic definition is that there is a pocket of land, you know, or geography that is being gentried, and that means it's being reformed for a higher and more affluent social class. Okay. That's like the most basic definition. Okay. Because and some folks would say, oh, that's good. We need gentrification because we need people with higher incomes and blah blah blah. We need to revitalize spaces. Um I I strike gentrification from my vocabulary period in terms of it being good. Um because for me it's very important not to commingle um the two. So for me, gentrification is really the act in which historically oppressed, historically redlined, which are also usually historically Black communities that are, the land might be low cost because mm. of um, man-made economic handicaps. When gentrification is the process in which capitalism, private developers, whatever it may be, takes advantage of that baked in historic racism to profit off of low costs and redevelop the space to maximize profits by selling to people of higher incomes and higher means. Mm -hmm. This is really the most critical point is that gentrification does not take into consideration the outcomes of people who have been in the communities their whole lives. Absolutely. And it's development that is willing to 
incur human collateral and human suffering in the form of displacement um, and also sometimes harassment of legacy residents and cultural suppression of legacy residents. So there's a, and one last thing. So there's a difference between development that sure, it might bring in some mixed income, middle income folks will make a space look nice and development that totally just steamrolls existing communities and builds around them and on top of them. So. And this gentrification to me is really where capitalism and racism come together like transformers, you know, the transformers. (laughs) I'm a straight up Gen X kid where Mm -hmm. they come together and as transformers and they become like, I don't remember if it's Optimus Prime or whatever, uh, Decepticon, whatever the hell it is. They come together to form this master transform, a transformer. Mm -hmm. And they are like, here we are. And like, let's bring everybody else on so we can have extensions of destruction Mm -hmm. and they just destroy. Right. Okay. So sorry. I just wanted to clarify that, you know, because I think some people that gentrification is a buzzword now it's trending. Right. And people talk about it a lot because it is a hot situation, but really it's been happening for decades, Mm -hmm. but like it's hot now because we're talking about it because there's an insurgence of it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So you were on wall street activism, uh, housing activism. Okay. Yeah. So, so yeah, there was this big developer in, in New Rochelle that was awarded 10 parking lots and their, their plan was to build vertically and build 2000 luxury rental apartments. And the cheapest mm. apartment was a studio at like $2,800 a month, which is, excuse just- me. That is that even worse. And then the irony of it all is that you know, the land was around the train station, mm-hmm. which historically, if you understand, you know, how cities were designed, Black communities were centered in the downtown pockets because those were historically industrial zones. So it had the train tracks coming through and the factories. And so Black people were put there. White folks were out on the outskirts of the city where there was in the, the counties. Mm-hmm. Now, though, Modern day downtown areas are more attractive because they're walkable, they're close to transportation, they have, you know, restaurants and other amenities. And so that's why Black neighborhoods are oftentimes the most highly gentrified neighborhoods because Black folks are sitting on intrinsically valuable land. It's intrinsically valuable, but it's economically depressed because of, you know, racism and man-made um inputs. So, so this developer, they're building 2000 luxury rental apartments in a low income black and brown neighborhood. We mobilized around trying to advocate for affordable housing at deep levels of affordability. And we wanted for local people, particularly formerly incarcerated people to be hired to do the construction on all of those buildings and to be paid a living wage. So from our perspective, that was like bare minimum. Like that was asking for the basics, but this developer fought it tooth and nail. And unfortunately our elected officials also didn't, didn't support the people. They were more interested in development by any means necessary Mm -hmm. because of the money. And so, I mean, I I did that activism for seven years and I, yeah, it was a, it was a real battle And I realized that while community advocacy is important, 
Unfortunately for Black folks, once gentrification starts, it's almost impossible to reverse. Mm -hmm. And we really need to be more proactive in our own neighborhood outcomes. Mm -hmm. But development's also really, really hard, like getting the capital, um, getting the construction team, assembling the land. It takes a lot of know-how. And so I decided to start Parity, my organization, to be that tool for the people to be able to do development on their own terms um, and create wealth and ownership specifically in the process. Because when more of us own our land, that Mm. means we get to dictate more effectively what happens to our land. Okay. All right. So tell us about Parity. I want to know about the name, why you chose the name. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a question. This is something that I just want to know that I want to have an understanding of. Mm-hmm. With gentrification, gentrification, excuse me, if I'm a homeowner and let's say we live, you know, let's say we're neighbors and we live, you know, on a block, can the government, does the government have, um, if the government says we want to build a grocery store here a whole foods needs to be here this is what we're going to do can they say okay you guys have six months to get out because you know we're using this this is government property we're buying it you know y'all got to get out y'all can go here and it's going to be nice we're going to give you this money for this house but you got to go the government has full authority to do that is that correct yeah that's true through what's called eminent domain um well i thought that and i was like no nah, that can't be so this is america then i was like no that's probably so this is america exactly <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah basically i and i'm not going to get all the legalese correct but right. where that comes from is they can say that it's for a public good mm-hmm. and taking this one property or these two properties <clears throat> to develop a larger public project it's for the public good. And as long as they compensate you the fair market value for your mm-hmm. home, mm-hmm. then they can they can take it. It takes a little bit longer than six months. It's usually mm-hmm. closer to 12. Well, I mean, ideally, so if you willingly sell, sure, it could take six months. If you want to fight it, then it would be a long legal battle that could take, you know, two or three years. But if I just threw that, that number out there. But so, okay. Mm-hmm. That is that is disheartening. When you talk about like legacy owners and legacy property, because um, that's disheartening. I don't want to get into any personal stuff, but like that is really, really sad. And that is the way that is supreme gentrification. That's like the that is not good. And I'm just going to leave it right there. Yeah. Yeah. The other um, sad thing, and this happens a lot in Baltimore, is the demolition Mm. vacant homes and so you know some would argue that oh we need to demolish it because it's unsafe and when it is unsafe absolutely i get it but most of the time demolition is done as a blight reduction tool Mm. which again i I also understand blight has like impacts on our mental health what is i don't know what that is blight Mm um yeah blight is basically when you see an abandoned building where the windows are broken and the roof has caved in and the paint is peeling. It's just the visual okay. physical presence of deterioration. Destruction or deterioration. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Well, I just learned a new word. Yeah. Right. 
<laughs> and so the city, in particularly in the Black Butterfly, has been using demolition as a blight reduction tool, which I understand in some regards. But for me, it's sad because those generations of Black folks lived in these homes. Mm-hmm. And there are so many stories there. There's so much history and culture people's grandmothers were born in these homes that, and then their mothers were born in the homes. And then just to demolish it, like as humans, we have a spiritual connection with land and with place. Yeah. And unfortunately for black folks in this country, because of the nature through which we were brought here, we haven't really been allowed to establish long-term deep connections with the earth in any one given place. Cause each time we kind of start to build roots, we're then uprooted. We're like plucked and then relocated somewhere. Displaced. You know, so, many, so many Baltimoreans came here from the South um, as, you know, free, free, free Africans, free black people in this country. And, you know, established several generations of, um, of families here, but then if we're gentrified from here, where do we where do we go? Like, what's the next place? A lot of people move to um, Pennsylvania, like right over the line, because property is a little cheaper there. I, a lot of people buy houses in like York, and you know, people be like, "Oh, I live in Pennsylvania." And I'm like, "Why in the hell would you move to Pennsylvania?" And they're like, "Well, the housing is cheaper, right?" Or Delaware. So a lot of people, d- yep, Delaware. Um, Pennsylvania near the line. A lot of people move to North Carolina, Atlanta, and Texas. Those are places I hear of people here leaving and moving to quite a bit. The scary thing is, and not to get all like meta or philosophical, but oh, get it because spirit, <laughs> spirit, you you, you got to connect well, it because it, it's real. Yeah. So the scary thing about capitalism is that it's a never-ending cycle. So York, Pennsylvania you know, will also eventually be gentrified. Absolutely. So it's a never ending like, okay, now we got to find a new place. We got to find a new place. And eventually there will be no new places. Um, Especially like if we're not focusing on the core of the issue for black folks in this country, it's going to be a perpetual cycle, but not to be all doom and gloom because there are a lot of people who are trying to, who are doing stuff to counteract that parody. And you are one of them. Yeah. And I'm sure there's many, many others. So, so tell me about parody. Why'd you choose the name? Yeah. So when I was um, like thinking about what our mission was, I knew unequivocally it was that I wanted to close the racial wealth disparity. And I specifically wanted to do that through homeownership. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, well, what's the opposite of disparity? And I was like, really like racking my brain. And 20 minutes later, I was like, oh, duh, parody. Right. <laughs> so it just, it was like, okay, this is, that's it. Um, and so what we're doing is, Again, we're really working to be to to put the power of development in the hands of the people. We want to work in predominantly black cities and neighborhoods. And so I I couldn't afford to do housing development in New York. I did manage to do a three unit affordable housing project, but um, within a year, the values in my neighborhood had quadrupled, and I just could not continue to afford to do work in New York. And so I said, where else in this country is there a predominantly Black city that's still suffering from redlining and predatory lending and segregation? And that was, it was Baltimore. I drove down 
and like drove down one weekend and I just fell in love. And I was like, this is it. It just felt intuitively right for me. So I quit my job um, and I drove down with a single suitcase and I lived in Airbnbs for the first six months. And then um, I eventually found an apartment <laughs> and I, my boyfriend <laughs> would would tell you like I I was living bare bones like I just had a, an air mattress and that was it an air mattress and a single suitcase and I was just grinding like bootstrapping in the sense every sense of the word um but so three years later our project is just about to have shovels in the ground um we are working in one neighborhood in west baltimore across 10 contiguous blocks and our goal is to acquire all of the abandoned buildings on those 10 blocks there's 96 abandoned buildings Mm. and the goal is to renovate them and then sell them at deeply affordable prices to you know particularly Black folks and people who have been historically disinvested of wealth to start to create wealth building opportunities. And again, it was really important for me to not just do rentals because when you just do rental, I mean, like rentals are important, but wealth building starts to distribute that power. And once you have a distribution of power and folks who are mission and values aligned, you start to be able to build like blocks and when I, I mean like BLOC, okay. you know, like power yeah. blocks yeah, um, where people can, you know, start to work together through agency to determine broader outcomes in their lives, not just around housing, but, you know, just everything. It matriculates. Um, it has a ripple effect. Absolutely. And then the, we get back to, uh, it's almost like... Um, like we return to a point on a on a circular uh if you think about the life in a circle which mm-hmm. i talk about often um we return to a place where our ancestors or our elders have been because mm-hmm. this was a mission and this was important to them when they had nothing it was all about owning land right and so um i think that is amazing if you have never been to baltimore or if you live in Baltimore and you just don't take the time to look. Um, Bree and I got into this conversation about, I work for a school and during the pandemic, I've had to do home visits. Not, you know, not really home visits where I'm going in, but more like porch visits. I'll go see, a, you know, try to track down a child who hasn't been logging in, or we go and drop off like t-shirts to students that are doing really well to still continue to have that like social, emotional connection with students. And I usually don't go into the city too much because there's something about it that makes me really sad. And when I started doing these home visits, I've had to speak with my therapist about how they leave me feeling because they leave me feeling really like heavy and really low. When I look at how like we have to live, I shouldn't say we have to live, but how we are living and how we have to live. Cause if you don't have options, you don't have options. You know what I mean? Or if all of your options are trash, all of your options are trash. You know what I mean? And when I look at these abandoned buildings, like it makes me sad. And then the way my mind works, I start thinking, well, what was this before this was of an abandoned building who lived here? How did we get here? Why has the city allowed there to be so many? Why is the city okay with 
human beings living next to or living amongst an abandoned building? Why is there a full block of abandoned abandoned homes? Mm-hmm. Like that is it's it's not um, okay. And so then I would talk to people, and I learned a little bit more about like Baltimore City and its fees and its taxes because Baltimore gets jiggy with the fees and the taxes around home ownership and around like property. But it really made me, you know, sad. And when I found out about your organization and what you did, it, you know, like it's sparked something. It made me happy. Like it almost reversed that feeling or that effect. And it made me want to say, well, I want to be a part of, you know, in some way, whatever that way is, like trying to reverse this because all I could think about my connection is of course to my people but on a more personal level my connection is to these children that I'm going to visit and these families that I have Mm -hmm. personal connections with and I'm like these kids shouldn't have to live like this they shouldn't have to walk past you know rat infested abandoned buildings they shouldn't they should not and nobody should be okay with other human beings living that way I can talk a little bit about the history of how we we got here in, in Baltimore and also nationwide. <clears throat> so in around 1890 was one of the first times on record we saw racial covenants um, written into. So basically a racial covenant was if a house was sold and, you know, there's the deed that's drafted, which is a contract, the owners who were white, who wanted to protect whiteness in their neighborhoods would write racial covenants that said at no point may this property be sold to a Negro or a person of Negro blood or descent. Mm. Um, And so that was in the 1890s was around the first time we started to see um, properties being restricted on the premise of race. Um, I think in 1910 is when it happened in Baltimore and Druid Heights and by 1934, the federal government passed what's called the National Housing Act. And the National National Housing Act was really interesting because it was designed to stimulate economic um, revitalization after the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. And specifically was designed to create federally backed and federally insured mortgages and loans for the creation of newly constructed homes in the suburbs. So that's, this is where like the suburb boom comes in. Mm -hmm. Um, However, the caveat was that these newly federally backed insured loans, super low costs could only be made to white households. Wow. Um, It was, this is written down. This is written. This is is law. Google it. Law housing act of 1934. Okay. Um, But it could only be for, for white families. And so it, it was a huge wealth generating tool for white people in this country. Simultaneously, the, the federal housing administration forbid banks from making these loans to black households. So it was a wealth building tool for white people and a wealth extracting tool for, for black people. Absolutely. Um, And so what the, what the housing administration required was that any banks um, in cities, and I think it was 234 cities across the nation basically had to take a map 
and determine on a neighborhood by neighborhood basis what the racial composition of those neighborhoods were. And so for most maps, you could search like red line map of Baltimore. Um, but most maps, you'll see the red concentration in the inner city. Cause again, like I described earlier, the inner city was m- more mostly industrial, not attractive. So that's where black folks were concentrated. Mm-hmm. And uh, the banks had to essentially take a red marker and outline these red, uh, these black neighborhoods, hence the term redlining. And that meant that no federally backed low cost mortgages could be made in those spaces, nor within any- the red, um, within, the, within the red lines or within the red perimeter. Right. There are nobody in that space that was drawn, right? right. Could get these loans, right? And the term okay. on the outskirts of the city, you'll see blue. Mm-hmm. Those were predominantly white neighborhoods, like Roland Park, etc. Of course, and they could take advantage of these really low-cost, affordable mortgages, so that they could start to own homes and build wealth. So. What ended up happening over, you know, many decades is that for Black households, number one, you were only, you could only live in these, you could only live in Black neighborhoods, but you couldn't get loans to own homes. Um, If you did own a home already and you, let's say you had a leak in your roof um, and you needed, you know, a loan to do some repairs and maintenance, the banks wouldn't lend you $5,000, $1,000 to patch that roof leak. And so what happens is over time when water enters your home, you know, it just, it, it, um, deteriorates, it deteriorates. And so suddenly you can no longer occupy that home. That's the first vacant property on the block. Um, vacant properties have this like really uncanny ability of triggering other vacancies. It's like a, it's an anchor or a weight on the entire neighborhood. Um, And so we started seeing people, you know, maybe there's a fire. That's another vacancy. Um, We start seeing slowly the degradation of Black neighborhoods where people have to start to leave and find other places to live. Um, You also have the presence of urban renewal, which was in the 60s and 70s, where there's this, you know, boom of the use of cars, um, jurisdictions wanting to build highways and you see highways being built through predominantly black neighborhoods. So mm-hmm. in West Baltimore, for example, we have the highway to nowhere, which was supposed to be a highway that connected that ran from West to East through Baltimore to connect two major other highways. But what you saw was that in East Baltimore, which was um, predominantly blue collar white folks they were actually able to stop the construction of the highway on their side of town. So this is like Patterson Park, kind of like Canton area. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Harlem Park and Poppleton, which was predominantly Black, they weren't able to stop the construction of the highway. And so I think it's close to like a thousand Black households and businesses were demolished so that this highway could be built. So if you ever drive you know, through Route 40, it's just a long stretch of road, but it doesn't actually serve for purpose. And it's created this like very unnatural division between these historically black neighborhoods. Yeah. Um, I think that's, I always get confused about this, but I think in Baltimore, we call that the Vodok. 
I think, which is really the viaduct, mm-hmm. but we've turned the word into, I think that's the viaduct. I don't, I don't, I say it that way because I've only known it that way. And I don't want to be in conversation with people and say, because the viaduct and they'd be like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> it's the viaduct because that's what everybody calls it because mm-hmm. Baltimore accents. But I, if I'm not mistaken, I think that is what they call that. I never knew that. I'm So let me just say this. While you were talking about like the Federal Housing Act of 34 and you were talking, you didn't see it because my lighting is weird in here, but I was, um, I I feel very angry and like Mm -hmm. I was brought to tears. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't cry, but like my eyes were filling up with tears because when I think about how with white oppression and and, and white supremacy, how they go out of their way, like beyond your natural everyday movement Mm -hmm. to destroy Mm -hmm. any and everything that we could possibly have. Mm -hmm. When I tell you that I, I, while you were talking, I mean, I'm fine now, but like I was enraged. Mm-hmm. And not enraged to where I want to run out and like blow anything up or kill anybody, like not like that. Mm-hmm. But like it makes me so angry. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's institutionalized racism. And, and it's so systemic and it's so yeah. uh planned out and, and strategic mm-hmm. and it is very it's disgusting to mm-hmm. me. Yeah. And I mean, it's so, it's pervasive because, I mean, not only was it the the disinvestment of wealth, but like, I, I also talk a lot about environmental racism and the fact that in Black neighborhoods, there was a deliberate underplanting of trees. So, you know, if you walk down any given block in Sandtown, Winchester, you'll just take a, just observe if you see trees compared to any given block in Bolton Hill, it's entirely tree-lined. But this is also important because trees help to cool the the neighborhood. And so in, in mostly Black neighborhoods, there's what's called the heat island effect, where on average, Black neighborhoods are eight degrees hotter than white neighborhoods. And it might not seem like a lot, but with climate change and all of what we're experiencing, um, it's going to be dangerous to live in, in predominantly, well, to live in um, neighborhoods that have lower tree cover because of that, that differential in temperature. We also know that trees help filter out particulates in the air. And so it's no surprise that asthma rates are disproportionately high in predominantly black communities because there's less trees. Mm. Also trees and their roots help um, when there's flooding you know, because they, they help absorb some of that runoff. So if there's no trees, that means that black neighborhoods are going to be more prone to major floods and climate damage. Yeah. Yeah. So so many overlapping effects. It's funny. You Mm -hmm. mentioned the heat Island thing in the summertime, you know, if I'm in like, I live in the County currently. Right. And, Mm -hmm. um, I'm moving soon and I will be technically living in the city, but it'll still be like the county. Um, Basically, it's like right on the line. And so when I I remember when I first moved back to uh, Baltimore from California, I remember riding through the city and thinking like, 
why are all these people outside? Because in, in the house where I live, we had central air, right? And then I remember like growing up as a little kid, I lived in Baltimore City proper. I lived in West Baltimore. And um, we didn't have central air. We could have, but we didn't. We had, you know, um, but we had air conditioning and we had air conditioning units. I don't remember my house as a child in Baltimore being like so hot that it was unbearable. But I would think to myself, why are these people outside sitting on the steps and it is 97 degrees, it's hot as hell. And I remember my aunt telling me, like, they don't have central air? What do you mean? Why are they outside? And I'm like, why don't they just go in the house and pull the shades down and keep it cool and turn their air conditioner on? One, because that's going to run your gas and electric bill up. Mm-hmm. Two, um, they, some a lot of them don't have air conditioning units because they can't afford them. Central air is not even a, an option. And I would just think that they're just outside in the sun, you know, baking, heat strokes, Mm-hmm. asthma and Baltimore summers are like it grips your chest like it yeah. <laughs> your lungs and wraps it around its knuckles like because the of the humidity and I'm just thinking to myself like why why are we in these situations mm-hmm. well CNR and, capitalism and racism CNR right. that's what it's called and then like when you think about Cherry Hill for example they're mm-hmm. dealing with the smog that the incinerator creates the toxins and it's just and again, right and they would never think of locating an incinerator in a patterson park or a fells point ever ever but because it's poor black folks oh but no the city needs this incinerator it's just oh so it's the one thing i try to tell folks is it's important not to pathologize black folks because i think without an understanding of history and the institutionalized, legalized racism, it's easy to just see the neighborhood and think that somehow it was a fault of the people who lived there. Absolutely. And it, it, and it was not, it was a designed and intentional destruction of Black space and- Of Black and, life. And Black life. Because all of these things, um, when you think about it from a more grandiose, I told you guys that's my new favorite word. It's actually not my new favorite word. It's always been one of my favorite words. But anyway, <laughs> when you look at it from you know a more hovering perspective, if you look at it from a helicopter perspective versus being on the ground. Mm-hmm. Okay, so all these things have happened. It destroys the quality of your life. When the, your quality of life is down or it's not good, you know, your mental health goes up, right? Of course, there's going to be crime. Of course, Baltimore is crime ridden. Of course it is. How could it not be? Right. Right. And I mean, the compounding effects, what ends up happening is to redevelop or do anything. It takes such a big amount of capital because it's such a huge problem at this point that it's hard to get little wins in in Baltimore um, and not just not just Baltimore, but just against this monster in general that we're fighting CNR. CNR. <laughs> but so what Parity is doing is we we recognize that you know this challenge is huge, and instead of um, just trying to throw a ton of money at it and then hoping it works, what we did was we kind of flipped real estate development on its head, and we're using social capital. 
recognizing that in Black folks, we have so much power that is just waiting to be unleashed. So what we're doing is even before we own any of the properties on these blocks, we are working with mission-aligned, values-aligned Black folks to say, hey, we're going to all move into this neighborhood together in mass um, because we can't do it alone. We can't just do one building and then you know think that's going to change anything. We really need to use our collective energy, our collective economics. So our parity's kind of unique approach is that we're building collectives of social groups, pre-existing social groups that want to live together. They want to be each other's neighbor and they want to own homes next to one another. And so this is, you know, we like work with this, the local schools to get the teachers involved, to get the parents involved. We work with the local churches to get the congregations who many of them moved out to the county even though their grandma, you know, the reason they go to that church is because their grandma lived down Absolutely. the block. Get those folks come on back. One of our home buyers is a pastor from the church in our neighborhood. Um, and so far we've, we have 25 people in our collective. Um, we also work with the renters in the neighborhood to get them to be homeowners. So we have 25 people in our collective who are ready to buy our homes and they're being, um, they go through homeownership counseling with one of our partners. They um, are being pre-qualified for a loan. We help folks build up their credit. We, um, you know, do budgeting exercises so that folks can um, build up their down payment. But most importantly, we talk about what it means to be equitable, what it means to be intersectional, which is really important for Black folks in this work is to recognize it's not just about college-educated Black folks. It's not just about Black folks with money, um, like how do we recognize the intersections of gender, sexual orientation, class, incarceration status, language, you know, country of origin, like blackness is so diverse, you know, it's a spectrum. And how do we recognize that like systems of oppression show up differently for Mm -hmm. some of us? For different people. Um, Absolutely. And how do we like work together through that so that we're creating spaces that are just like really rich and, and yeah. And so, I'm sorry, I was going to say, it's mm -hmm. funny you say that because in my mind, I think that's so much strategic, let's call it strategic planning, right? Because CNR is a business. It's, it's an establishment. It's an organization, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I love that I gave it a name. Me too. Um, I'm yeah. going to use that, but I'm going to quote you. I'm Please quote credit you. me. Just credit <laughs> me and link them back to the show so that they can come and listen. So it's funny that you say that because when I think about the strategic planning and the time and the, the diabolical and maniacal thought process it goes into creating this these systems and creating this situation, um, also in creating... Uh, methods of divisiveness in our community because that is that's mm-hmm. that's one of our root issues the divisiveness the I'm better than you because um uh 
you're darker I'm because you're darker and I'm lighter. I'm better than you because my hair is like this and yours is not. I'm better than you because I have a job. I'm better than you because I don't have to work at a factory. I'm better than you because I went to college. I'm better than you because I went to a white college. I'm better than you because I'm in a Greek organization and I'm an African American. And, you know, I'm better than you because I'm in this Greek organization. The divisiveness in our community is so disgusting to me. Like it makes me want to vomit on my own feet. But, but again, we get right. It's not our fault. I'm not saying that it's our fault. Right, right. I'm saying that okay. CNR has created these this situation and strategically planned all of these things. I never believed that the Willie Lynch letter was real. I definitely think that that is just something that some white person or maybe a black person created to make us feel like, oh, we can't do this. Let's all get together and rise above this. I've never believed that it was real. But I do believe that CNR has created all of these. Um, I don't even know what to call them, created this clusterfuck of a situation that we have to figure out how to exist in. And as a result, there's so much division, even down to our hair. And Mm -hmm. I think that that is what is stopping us within our community, not with CNR, like, fuck them. We're not even thinking about them right now. I'm talking about us because we have to heal us. We have to heal us. Well, but the funny, yeah, go ahead, Mimi. I think that that gets in the way of us. Yeah, it does. But the funny thing is it's so, I I find it, I feel like it's just so easy for us just to collectively be like, you know what? I'm not going to do that anymore. Like I'm not going (laughs) to create these like false hierarchies uh, based off of white supremacy. Like once we recognize that internalized racial inferiority and how it manifests in those divisions, right. like once we recognize it, it's very simple and easy to just be like, you know what? I'm not letting that be my way of living anymore. And so I think any movement, at least for me, is really important to call those things out up front. It's the, what did we say? It's, um, Awareness, acknowledgement, and action. What were the acknowledgement, <laughs> acceptance, and action? There you go. Like it's so simple to just acknowledge. Like, okay, this is how we are operating from a scarcity mindset because of the white supremacist pool that we're swimming in. Mm-hmm. Um, let's accept that it's an issue, right. and accept that we're going to all collectively work on it in action. Let's just like, we're going to organize around it and stamp it out. And so like with parody, again, we do a lot of foundational building that, okay, it's not just about owning homes. It's not just about building wealth. It's about black liberation. And what does black liberation Mm. look like? It's liberation for all of us, not just a few of us. And in order for us to understand it, we need to root ourselves in history and we need to root ourselves in critical race theory and understanding how white supremacy shows up. Um, And then the last thing I'll say about what's unique about our model is that we focus not just on the renovating the abandoned buildings, but doing anti-displacement work. And that really means that we do deep outreach to legacy residents who already own homes in these neighborhoods or who are renting and connect them with resources so that as development happens, they have all the tools they need to stay in their homes indefinitely and participate in that revitalization and also dictate the outcomes of the revitalization. Um, And so what that means is we connect folks with um, free legal resources because unfortunately in black communities, you know, we might have inherited homes 
deeds, but didn't actually make sure that our names were on the deeds. Mm. And so oftentimes we're living in homes that we don't actually own. And if God forbid you fall behind on your taxes or your mortgage, you have no recourse to take control of that. So we do legal, um, legal planning. We help with life estate planning and wills and testaments because, you know, when, when, when granny passes away, um, unfortunately she didn't leave, you know, directions on it gets ugly. It gets ugly in our community. And Death then what either brings us together or tears our families apart. Exactly. And then what ends up happening is, well, then nobody takes control of the house. It falls into to deterioration. And then that's black wealth that's lost. Mm-hmm. Um, so we really try to think about the whole, the whole situation. We also connect, um, especially elders with property tax um, support. So we help them apply for homeowners tax credits so that as the values in the neighborhood goes up, their property taxes don't go up with it because that could also be a huge destabilizing factor for black wealth. Um, and we raised $25,000, which is a small amount of capital, but we are just redistributing that to folks who are in tax sale. Um, So tax sale is an annual process where if you are behind on your property taxes, the city will sell your debts to private investors. Hmm. And let's say it's, you know, a thousand dollars that you owe, that private investor will purchase that thousand dollar debt, pay off the city, and they then have the right to go to court and file to take your property essentially from you to pay dollar tax. Are you serious? It happens, Mimi, it happens every year. Hundreds of particularly black families lose their homes for $1,000, $3,000 tax debts. And oftentimes they own these homes free and clear. So that's, you know, $80,000, $100,000 of multi-generational wealth that was built, that was lost because of a $3,000 tax debt. And then these investors that bought this house for $3,000 then go flip it at auction $50,000. And so right now we're doing a lot of advocacy around abolishing the tax sale entirely. Um, But in the interim, we do a lot of just trying to help people get out of that situation. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a lot, but um, I see why you drink Red Bull and coffee, girl. My days start, I wake up at five 30. Jesus. Try to Christ. try to get on top of emails, just try to get prepared for the day. Usually my meetings start by eight. And because I do community work, you know, that means oftentimes my days don't end until 8 p.m. because we have evening meetings. So it's a, it's really, yeah, it's a lot. Um, but I, I, I was... I was telling Bree that she has to find, you know, I'm always going to find a way to talk about self-care. You have to take care of yourself. You have to say, you have to set boundaries. This year I'm focusing on, every year, you know, I focus on a thing, right? Last year, I think my theme was healing and God knows have mercy. It was, I was all up in it. This year it's about setting boundaries. It is so important to set boundaries and setting boundaries is a form of self-love and self-care because you should not have to drink Red Bull and coffee simultaneously. You deserve to take a hot bath at night to have a hot (laughs) cup of tea, herbal tea at night and eat popcorn or ice cream or whatever it is you want to do. Watch something that you want to watch, read a book that has nothing to do with housing and uh, racism and capitalism, and just take some time for yourself because 
If not, like you'll become so overwhelmed with this work that you could possibly say, fuck this shit. I'm over it. You know, I'm not getting anywhere or this is too stressful. Or, and you don't, you know, we, I, I, we need you. Right. And when I say we, I mean like we as black folks as a whole, I don't care if you live in a mansion or if you live in the projects like black people in the black community as a whole need people like you who are willing to. I mean, like think about how sacrificing that was that you turned away a three hundred thousand dollar career Mm -hmm. to come and do this work. I feel like people like you are um, unicorns. You are the black unicorns that, you know, people talk about existing. And I think that I, I feel like I wish that we had more Bree Jones. And for me, I know you're a, you're a millennial, right? Mm-hmm. I always talk about how I think millennials are crazy. I love them actually. Um, but like how I think they're crazy. But I think that um, the one thing that I love about them is that you guys are not afraid to just put everything on the line and we need Mm -hmm. people like you in our community to try to save us because we need to be saved. Mm -hmm. But really the only people who can save us is us. Nobody is going to save us. And I Mm -hmm. think a lot of times in our community, we look for other people like the government, the government isn't going to fucking save us. The government put us in this position in the first place. Mm -hmm. We have to come together and band together and save ourselves. And I, I feel like at the root of all of that is self-care and self-love. We have to take care of ourselves so that we can't, can get up and put on the armor. And it has to be the armor of God, because if it ain't the armor of God, we ain't going to be able to do this. Or the universe, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it, whoever it mm-hmm. is for you, you got to put it on and you got to go out and we have to fight with that kind of armor because we need mm-hmm. help. We Like, this is so, I don't even want to get into it. <laughs> well, but thank you. I appreciate you on behalf of Black people everywhere. <laughs> thank you for thank this work. I, I appreciate that, and I also feel like we we all have it in us. But Absolutely. a lot of us are just trying to keep our heads above water, mm-hmm. you know. And I just want to honor that. And you know, not everybody needs to be like a social justice warrior. Sometimes <laughs> we just need to like survive. But but I think right housing is so important but not just housing but like these movements we're building is because it starts to create a sense that oh no I can do like what Bree is doing like I can be an activist in my own little way however it might be and make a difference in not only my lived experience but our collective lived experience and with housing stability when you have a safe home to go to a warm home that's yours that frees up bandwidth for you to then again be active in other ways and speak up in other ways if you go home and you need to worry about your ceilings leaking and there's mold and you don't have heat in the winter you don't have the headspace to then go try to do you know something else so I just want to you know honor that not I guess in a sense, I'm privileged that I even could dream about just like quitting my job and doing right. what I'm 
Because honestly, if this didn't work out, I could go back to Wall Street, pick Absolutely. up right where I left off and keep keep it moving. Keep it moving. Yeah. Not everybody has that privilege. And so but I do think in, in addition to what you said in a couple of episodes ago, uh, the episode where I talked about the Freddie Gray uprising, I talked about how, you know, now everybody wants to be a social justice warrior. And that is um, admirable. But everybody is not, that's not everybody's ministry. You know, right. like exactly. I used to go out and march and it was great in my twenties and I'm marching and I'm walking and I got signs and I'm wearing colors and it's good. But at 41, I don't want to go march. I don't want to right. do that. I would rather have after school groups with young girls to tell them about going to college elsewhere and then coming back and, and, and working in your community and, and helping. Important. Yeah, absolutely. And I, but that, I, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I think I'm a black unicorn too. I, <laughs> I think that, I think I just wish that there were um, more people that tapped into that resource, mm-hmm. that God-given resource, you know, mm-hmm. what is your thing? And right. I think that that goes back to what I was saying about a lot of times in our community, I feel like there's a lot of I and me, but that is because like, like you said, we're trying to keep our head above water, right? Mm-hmm. We are trying to make sure that we are not even thriving. Like some of us are not even, we just want to live. We just want to stay alive. Not even, right. not thriving, not even surviving. We just want to make sure that we live, that we wake up tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. And I think that because we are in that space, it is hard to think about, well, how can I think about saving somebody else or saving the community as a whole when I can't even figure out how to save myself? So I want to definitely thank uh, Bree Jones of Parity Homes here in Baltimore for joining me for this conversation. It was very enlightening. I know I learned quite a bit. Um, I hope that uh, you guys learned something and I hope that it is beneficial to you in some way, especially if you are local, but also if you are not local, because I mean, like the hood is the hood is the hood and mm-hmm. an urban area is an urban area is an urban area. I don't mm-hmm. like the word urban, but whatever. <laughs> That's what I mean. Um, Bree, can you tell the people where to find you uh, on social media? Or and you know your website so that they can learn more about um, Parity Homes, and um, so they could stay abreast of any new information that you put out, and also tell people how that how they can help or how they can be a part mm-hmm. of the movement. Yeah, so folks can um, go to our website www.parityhomes.com, and Parity is spelled P-A-R-I-T-Y, and um, you can find us on Instagram on that same handle, Parity Homes. And yeah, sign up on the website. You can sign up um, either to get more information on how to become a homeowner with us. We actually have, um, we're pre-sold for our first two blocks, um, but we're constantly looking for, for new folks to join the movement. So you can sign up for that or just general interest, general updates. We'll send newsletters just on our progress and how things are going. And then the summer, we probably will have some volunteering um, opportunities. And um, yeah, 
please reach out. And Mimi, I just want to say thank you so, so much. This I've done a lot of panels and speaking engagements. And honestly, I was kind of getting to the point where I was like, I'm not accepting any more speaking opportunities. Because sometimes it just feels like a repetition of all the same stuff. But yeah. I have to say, this has been such a pleasure. And it felt like I was just talking to a girlfriend, which I was. So it just, I'm really happy. Thank you so much for asking me to be on your show. Thank you for that. That made my day. Like I, all day today, I've been getting like really good messages and feedback about the show. And a lot of times, like people don't know that, like that kind of stuff comes at the very moment that I need it. Like, cause you know, sometimes mm-hmm. I don't feel that great or, you know, sometimes, you know, self-doubt, like I'm a human being, but that really, really made me feel good. I appreciate it. And when I saw that, um, I think it was uh, my friend, Jessica, Jessica Solomon mm-hmm. posted um, when you were looking for um, like an assistant. Oh, or yeah. Something. We yeah. were hiring. Yeah. yeah. And I reposted it. And when I saw what you were doing, I was like, this is so dope. And, and it came around one of those times where, like I said, I was doing home visits and I was just getting really sad and really depressed just driving around Baltimore City thinking like, my babies live here. Like the babies at my school that I see every day and I hug every day, pre-COVID, of course, you know, they have to live next to abandoned houses where, you know, drug dealers store or stash their drugs, where people kill people and store dead bodies, where there are rats, where there's mold, where there's, you know, just all kinds of stuff. And and nobody should have to live that way. Nobody. And I don't care what color you are. I don't care your economic status. Like nobody deserves that life, especially in a country like this. It's, 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 it's appalling to me. And Mm -hmm. I think it hit me more so because I know these children, I see them every day, you know, and it's just disheartening. And, and some of the, it's just disheartening and it, it really breaks my heart. So when I saw what you were doing, I was inspired. I was like, you know what? People need to know that there are people out here doing, I mean, people can believe in whatever they want to believe in, but this is my show and I'm going to say what I believe in. <laughs> people, people should know that there are people who are doing, you know, the work of God. You know, and it's not always about being in a pulpit or about, you know, you know, whatever people's concept is like there are angels on earth. And that's how I look at it. When people do that kind of work, that is definitely that's God work. You know what I mean? And so Um, I I knew and I know that's a lot to put on somebody like, wait a minute, I don't want to carry that. (laughs) You don't have to carry it at all. I'm just saying Mm -hmm. that, you know, I'm grateful that there are people like, you know how people say, I'm just happy to know that there are still good people in the world. I'm happy Mm -hmm. to know that there are still good people in the world that are doing things to benefit the people in my community who need it the most, Mm -hmm. you know? So thank you. Thank you for that, Mimi. No problem. And thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, Maybe I'll have you on again. I don't know what we'll talk about, but I I don't have a problem finding things to talk about. Right. We could just just talk about whatever, girl. Yeah. Therapy, rest, (laughs) drinking water, right? Yeah. (laughs) Giving up Red Bull. (laughs) Let's talk about not drinking Red Bull and coffee. (laughs) Let's talk about that. Proper self-care. But thank you again, Bree. And I actually look forward to uh, working with you maybe over the summer. I can volunteer, get some kids even to help out. I would um, love that. Stuff That would be dope. 
Yeah, I would love that. Absolutely. We'll we'll have a lot of like neighborhood cleanups, um, yeah. also a lot of like greening efforts and beautification. Um, and also let's just maybe like once the houses are stabilized and, you know, they're being framed, the kids can walk through and kind of see like, you know, what a house looks like when it's under construction and just so we could start to expand, you know, that realm of what's possible. Absolutely. Because I fully believe that when people like, sometimes I try to explain this to the teachers at my school, some of our kids can't dream Mm -hmm. about things because they can't even conceptualize the idea or the notion of certain things because it's so far removed from like their psyche, but for them to see it, you know, then there's a a visual for them to think about when they go to sleep or for them to daydream about when they're writing a poem, you know what I mean? Or when they're just sitting, looking out the window, they can daydream about the house that they saw and say to themselves one day, I want to own a house and it'll look like this before it, you know, they'll be manifesting without even knowing they're manifesting. I love that. Yes. So thank you so much again. Uh, Thank you, Mimi. Also, before we wrap up, I want to give a shout out to Jess. Jess Solomon, she is the truth. She's the dopest. She's the the dopest. She is. She is the dopest. You need to get her on the show next. I did. So she's so like fancy. Like, I don't (laughs) like who am I to have Jess Solomon on my show? Right. I know. Jess Solomon is my my boo. Jess Solomon is my straight up boo. And she's my Baltimore boo too. But she is just like so like she's amazing. On a she's like I put her one. on a pedestal. She's another <laughs> one who does like God's work. Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. And she does God's work with without even, you know, needing a lot of like shine or needing a lot mm-hmm. of like ooh, ooh, ooh. But she, she I don't know if she knows it, but she's a big Excuse my friend. She's a big fucking deal in Baltimore City. She, she is. She better know it. She knows it. If she doesn't, she knows it now because I just said it. I said it. <laughs> but yeah, shout out to Jess Solomon because she she's she's the truth. She's she's dope. She's dope, dope. And so I it sounds her. like that. That's your. It sounds like that's your next guest. Maybe See you later. <laughs> we wouldn't talk about anything that has anything to do with anything she does. We would talk about um, ridiculous fun stuff. But we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. But thank you, Bree, so much. I appreciate you. Thank you. And um, keep doing the keep up the good work. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. So today's straight facts comes from a young lady named Tiffany. Tiffany is hailing from Dallas. And Tiffany says, I recently started a baking company. A customer requested a cake with a very basic design for a birthday party. Everything was going great until it was time to put the final touches on the cake and the result was a disaster. It took way longer than I expected. The cake was able to be corrected. However, it was four hours late to the birthday party. The customer paid a deposit with an understanding that the balance would be paid upon delivery. When asked about the balance, the customer stated that they were not going to pay the balance due to the cake being late. What would you do? Chop it up as a loss or reach out to further rectify the situation? Tiffany, um, as someone who has been self-employed and someone who has uh, ordered 
food or cake or some kind of service to be delivered for an event. I got to say, you got to chop this up as a loss, baby sis. And here's why. It was four hours late and it was your fault. And it was not your intentional fault. But as the supplier of the product or the service or whatever it is that you are supposed to supply, you showed up four hours late with the product. I can't say that I would have paid you the balance either. Um, I probably would have paid you something, um, but I don't know if I would have paid the entire balance or I may have paid the entire balance. No, we would have had to have a conversation about that, sis. Uh-uh. Four hours late to the party? The party's probably about to end. No, you, you kind of got to chop that up as a loss, sis. Uh, because it's on you, as Yellow Beasy says. That's on me, baby. That's on you, Tiffany. Sorry. Um, I hope that that was a teachable moment for you. I hope that you learned something from that. And I hope that um, whatever it is, you are not four hours late or late at all to any more parties where you need to deliver baked goods. Okay. Be well. So for today's We Got to Do Better, um, I'm doing something a little bit different to close out this series. And... Um, I just want to say, I don't even know what to say because this is the last episode before my, um, one year birthday anniversary for him in my purse, which is exciting for me, but I want to close out this series with something that isn't my typical, like inspiring or motivating in a, in a standard way, but the reminder of the fact or the reminder of the truth um, should be motivating enough for us to make us want to continue to fight and to um, be brave and have courage like the Austin family and um, to be activists in our own way, like Bree Jones, to fight against uh, racism and inequity, period, in this country for uh, black people, but not just black people, for people of color, period, because we have faced far more oppression than um, I think our ancestors ever could have believed that we would face. And so I want to read something that I found on the internet. Um, I can't really quote it. I don't remember where I saw it, but in doing my research for this episode, I came across it. And it says structural racism has created tremendous racial disparities in housing. And a large part of this is persistent discrimination in the job market, where even as people of color climb the corporate ladder, they still continue to make less than equally qualified whites. Lower wages, along with historical discrimination that prevented them from owning homes and building wealth, means that people of color are more likely to rent and are also more likely to struggle affording that rent. When people struggle to afford rent, they face greater risks of instability, eviction, and even homelessness, which research links to an array of negative life outcomes, such as food insecurity, poor health, lower academic achievement, and lower economic mobility. So in conclusion, we just got to do better. You know, because we can't expect for someone, as I said earlier, 
we can't wait around for someone else to save us. We have to save ourselves. And um, what I just read is a, a reminder that all of this kind of plays together. It kind of dances together um, in the mosh pit of oppression uh, in this country. So for the last, we got to do better before my baby turns one. Let's just do better and let's continue to fight for one another. And um, let's do it, of course, for ourselves, but let's do it in the name of our ancestors and let's do it for those who come after us. <laughs> Friends and kin, thank you. Thank you. But before I tell you, thank you, of course, you already know how this rolls. I want to thank God first because God is supreme and he's definitely supreme in my life. Uh, I recognize and appreciate the grace that God extends to me every single day of my life. And I am super grateful for that because I understand that it is a privilege and it is not an obligation. Um, I am very full in this moment. I wasn't expecting this, but this is um, this is a, a very major moment for me. I just feel full. You know, I've been doing this for a year. I can say that I've been doing this for a year. I had a launch. I launched this podcast a year ago on April the 1st. I had the official launch on April the 1st. And um, like I, I have grown as a human being with the uh, assistance of you guys, whether you realize it or not. So I just want to say thank you. And not my traditional every episode. Thank you. Just a very heartfelt and deep deeply rooted in gratitude. Uh, thank you to you guys who listen. I appreciate it. Um, and I hope that next year when we are coming up on my baby's second birthday, I can say this to the people who are listening to this now and maybe 500 new people, maybe 5,000 new people. That would be great. I am so honored to uh, share this time and my energy with you guys, especially if you keep coming back, because I understand that once again, it is a privilege and it is not an obligation. Nobody owes me anything. And I can't wait until we get to do this again, which will be on April the 1st. And that will be a very fun show. Now, before you exit out of whatever streaming service you are using to listen to this, I want you to stop what you're doing because I'm about to ruin the image and the style that you're used to. I look funny. But yo, I'm getting money, see? And yo, world, I hope you're ready for me. How about that? Shout out to Humpty Hump. Anyway, if you haven't already done so, scroll up and go click subscribe or follow if that is an option on the streaming service where you're listening. And now I want you to go on over to Instagram and follow me at handmemypurse underscore podcast. And you can also follow me on the Twitter at HMMP underscore podcast. And on Facebook, just search Hand Me My Purse Podcast. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or any other medium that allows you to, please take 90 to 120 seconds to rate and review the show or give it a thumbs up. Be sure to share Hand Me My Purse with your friends, your loved ones, and even your enemies because even people you don't like deserve to listen to what I got to say right? They may learn something and become a better person and then you may end up liking them. The best way for people to find out about this show is by you guys telling them all about it. So tell a friend to tell a friend to tell a friend. And also if you submit a review on the show, 
Going into the first year or the second year, actually, your review may very well be featured on an episode. I am going to start reading reviews on the show because I want people to know what people have to say about Hand Me My Purse. So remember, subscribe and or follow the show so that you are the first to know when I drop an episode, which is always the first and 15th of every month. This is just a special exception because there was a part two and I didn't want to stretch it out. I wanted you to get it before the first came and the first is designated for my anniversary slash birthday show. Um, the first and 15th of every month and make sure you follow Hand Me My Purse on social media. Rate and review the show and tell your friends and your kin about the show because what? Sharing is caring. Show notes are always available at handmemypurse.buzzsprout.com and I highly suggest that you get into the habit of reading the show notes because they have all the good information in them, including links to the things that I discuss on the show and even sometimes things that I don't discuss. Like in the show notes for today, I linked um, an article from NPR about how the United States strategically segregated um, a nation. But anyway, I want to remind you that the opening and closing music for this podcast is provided by none other than Gloomy Tunes. I want you to submit your questions for the straight facts segment because I love them, as well as photos, stories and quotes about your aunties to hello at handmemypurse.com or you can always send me a DM on Instagram. It may be featured on a future episode. It may be featured on a future episode or on social media. I want you also to never forget that you can expect a brand new episode of Hand Me My Purse, the podcast on the 1st and 15th of every single month. So the same way you expected those checks on the 1st and the 15th early in the morning, you already know your girl is going to have you covered on those days. Again, the 1st and 15th of every month on your podcast streaming services such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. These are for my international friends and kin and anywhere else you may even think that you can find it. Or you can just go straight to my Buzzsprout website and find it there. I look forward to you looking forward to listening. And I'm out this bitch. Friends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one listen to a really good cry with radhi devlukia on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts 
The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.